Good morning, everybody. I am uh, excited to be with you. We're going to be talking, obviously, on uh, the subject of work as we continue our series in the book of Proverbs. So I've got my loose-fitting shirt on and my blue jeans. I'm ready to work up a little sweat because Father's Day or not, we're going to go with and talk about work today because I think work in the Proverbs is one of the most important topics, and I think we'll see um, the amazingness of this little 31-chapter document and what it says on a variety of topics, but certainly on the subject of work. In order to fully appreciate what's going on in Proverbs and to get into the minds of the Solomons and the Asaphs, the writers of the Proverbs, we got to go back a little. And if you want to go ahead and turn to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we're not going to cover all three chapters, but I want to show you some high points along the way. Because that's the theology, certainly the theology of the Pentateuch, but captured best on the subject of work, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 would have been in the hearts and minds of the writer's of the Proverbs. That's the, the, the schooling they would have had. That's the background of work. And I think for our purposes, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 covers uh, a multitude of subjects, certainly on the subject of work. And I think uh, at, the, at the root level, any study certainly of Genesis 1 and 2 would reveal that God has ordained work. It is a part of the human condition. It is a part of what is expected of human beings. It is not an elective, it is a required course. He has not only called us to work, as we're going to see through Adam and then later through the Proverbs 31 woman, we're going to see that God himself in Genesis chapter 1 models work for us. I counted 16 verbs that were assigned to God's activity in the first chapter alone. This huge construction project, if you will. Days 1, 2, and 3, he's going to form the planet. Days 4, 5, and 6, he's going to fill the planet. He's overseeing it uh, to, in, in every stretch of the imagination. And over those six days... He does all sorts of activities, and then because there was nobody else around to give him a grade, he graded himself, and he said, very good, very good, all that I have just done, okay? Keep that little very good in mind. That's going to come into play in important in just a moment. So we're going to come out of chapter one and into chapter two, those first three verses, he sort of looks back on all that he had completed, all the work that he had done, and then he sabbaths from that, if you will. He, he ceases to work and enjoys the accomplishment of that work. The Hebrew work week in, Gen- in Exodus 20 will be based on that. For God worked six days and rested one, so shall you, okay? But we come to chapter two, we see, I think, a closer look at what had been touched upon earlier in chapter one, where you see both Adam and Eve. At the latter portion of the sixth day in chapter one, we see the formation of the last of the earth creatures. He had created sea creatures and air creatures, and then a variety of different kinds of earth creatures. And the last creation, the crowning point of his creation, was human beings, made in the image of God, special, designed to represent him. And then chapter two sort of gives us a closer look So imagine chapter one sort of as this flyover and then chapter two, a closer look of how Adam was first created and then Eve from his side was created all around the concept of work, by the way. So Adam is placed in this garden. Now, unfortunately, in English, garden sounds like something in the backyard, right? Some tomato plants, got a few somethings back there, but that's not the idea of this at all. In fact, the word in Hebrew simply means 
cultivated region. It doesn't describe how large it is, but guess what? Genesis 2 does describe how large it is. It's this early part of Genesis 2. It talks about this, this area in which this garden existed. Some things we can learn about this garden. This garden had a river in it, by the way. And it, that river had such potentiality, Genesis 2 says, outside the garden, it split and became four rivers. Adam and Eve in chapter 3 thought they could hide from God in this garden. God would take walks in the cool of the day in this garden, according to chapter 3. In in Genesis 2, we see that there are all kinds of trees, plural, that were pretty to look at, and all kinds of trees, plural, that were good for food. And in the midst of now what I see as an orchard, this large, fertile region, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree tree of life was placed. And over that whole region, Adam was given the task to keep and to cultivate it. Two words of work that will show up later, by the way, in the Pentateuch to describe the actions, the work actions of the priest. So Adam is given the task to work and it's a big job. This is before the fall. Adam is in his heyday. He's a, he's a magnificent being. He's, come, he, he's been designed fully for God, but there's a problem. Remember, God had said the creation was very good, but Adam's state of being alone, remember your context in Genesis 2, that is to the magnitude, the size of this task, that was not good. Adam wasn't lonely, he was alone. He didn't have enough manpower, if you will. He needed some woman power to come and help round him out. And the introduction of the, the wife, first captured with the word in English, helper, which isn't really all that elevating of a term, but in Hebrew, azer is a very powerful term. It's a word that is used to describe God and God and the wife only in the Pentateuch. It's a very powerful word, and it talks about a kind of help that's not just cooking and cleaning and hanging out with the kids. This is a serious kind of assistance such that both Adam and Eve were needed to come together to handle the large task that Adam was first given, okay? So the two me's become a we toward and in and around the concept of work. That's how the first marriage is is actually formed is around this shared work ideal, okay? So authors of of the Proverbs are certainly going to know that. And so what we can learn a bit from this text, by the way, as we look at it through God's lens anyway, what is work? If you step back from Genesis 1 and 2, large banner, I realize, but work is the arrangement or the rearrangement of materials and ideas for good So as Christians, I think that's a fair um, um, principle in which to follow, that work is the arrangement or the rearrangement of materials and ideas for good. Let me illustrate. Uh, A gardener uh, will take raw material, rearrange it, and give human beings something they need, which is good, that is food. Musicians, we just heard them here, will will rearrange sound and, and words and ideas into meaningful thoughts and feelings. Architects will take ideas and the materials that, to bring about those ideas, uh, rearrange them and, 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 and design streets and bridges and buildings. Entrepreneurs will take the raw materials of ideas and talents, resources, and bring about new enterprises, new products, new jobs. Work, the arrangement of ideas, arrangement of materials for good. Well, what could go wrong? A lot went wrong. By the time we get to Genesis 3, verse 7, 
Sin has introduced the world, and we tend to think of sin as a moral thing and things that we have done wrong that have offended God. But what God is going to tell Adam is that because now of your sin, it's going to be hard for you to bring forth food from the ground. By the sweat of your brow, you will now work. What was not intended, hard work, is now in the ballgame, okay? Work was always intended, but now it's hard And it's actually good, if you think about it from God's lens, that we have struggles in our work. So it should remind us every day as a living audiovisual of our participation with Adam and with Eve in this first thing called sin. That it should drive us to this idea of, I want to escape this. I want to be away from this. God has equipped me and, and, and arranged for me to continue working until he calls me. But it's hard at times, is it not? And that's a good reminder that this world is not the way it was intended. And even in our workplace, uh, Larry Crabb, a famous uh, biblical counselor years ago, said there's something wrong with everything because of sin. And now work has been impacted. We're going to talk about work, and so we need to be armed with that knowledge. One of the things that we can glean from this study in Genesis real quick is that work, both pre-fall and after the fall, is God's plan for humankind. It is intended for us in which to participate. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, by the way, and designed to bring God pleasure in our work, a concept we'll talk about later. We have physical abilities, mental talents, abilities to work, earn a living, but in that episode in that venture, if you will, we can bring God pleasure in our work, the smallest of tasks to the most complex of arrangements. And lastly, and we'll talk about this as well at the end, but I love this little phrase, partnering with God. To the most simple, I'll say, just take God to work with you. And to many, that's a brand new idea. Again, we'll talk about that more in the end, but this idea of work then becomes a meaningful and real partnership with God in his love and care for the world. We are his vice regents, his stewards, his managers on the planet, and God has intended for us to work out the care for the planet primarily through our work. And one of the things that we can participate with God is in that realm. Now we'll move over to Proverbs, okay? We're going to spend probably the bulk of the time in Proverbs 31, verses 10 through the end. So if you want to camp out there, you'll see lots of verses appear on the, on the screen here. Um, but Proverbs, of course, is, is all about arranging our life in response to the, to the fear of the Lord, as verse 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 7 says, captured better maybe with our word, all. This idea of reverence, this idea of of being awestruck by the grandeur of God is really one of the ideas, themes that you'll see in the book of Proverbs. And it's intended that we might live life wisely, probably better skillfully. Wisdom tends to get sort of jumbled up and sometimes we don't really grasp that word. But I get the word skill at least. I I understand the skill it it takes to to make things, to to sing well, to perform well, to to, to construct, uh, to build a business, to raise a family. The skills that are necessary to navigate through life is really what are on display in the book of Proverbs. So, so like we do on Easter, right? Get your Easter egg bag, and as you go through, or basket, and as you go through Proverbs, just pick up little nuggets of wisdom, little nuggets of the different types of people that are in the world, little nuggets of all the different things you might encounter in your life so that you might be armed and equipped to navigate 
them well. That's the essence of the book of Proverbs. And so certainly it has something to say on the subject of work, and it does. There's a really sevenfold comprehensive kind of look uh, at work that the Proverbs will reveal under close inspection. Uh, We're going to fly by most of these. We'll do some touch and goes on a couple of them, but I want you to get a, a good sense of the comprehensiveness of this book on this subject. That the wise worker is indeed trustworthy and diligent, shrewd, generous, just. The wise worker guards the tongue and is humble. So we're going to kind of make our way through each of these. And then I've got some stuff at the end that I'd like us to think about, okay? So first one, trustworthy. The heart of her husband trusted her. That fits that that's in Proverbs 31. Uh, and, and the her there is, is really wisdom um, personified. And let me tell you how we got there. Wisdom in both Greek and Hebrew, and we're studying the Hebrew word here, hokmah, is a feminine noun, okay? And nouns are usually just declined by either masculine, feminine, or neuter. But every once in a while, the author, if he or she wants to, can assign gender, or in this case, femininity, to that feminine noun. That's what happens all throughout the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is a she throughout the book of Proverbs. I just saw about 15 wives go, see, I told you. Listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. Wisdom is a she throughout the book of Proverbs. You'll see it in chapter 8 where wisdom is speaking. I was with God at creation. I was endowing him with skill, if you will, so that that planet might tilt just properly and be just close enough to the sun or not too far from it so that it is properly arranged for the seasons. All the things that it took from God's perspective to build and fill a planet, skill was a major part of that. By the time you get to chapter 31, and if you've been going through the book of Proverbs, picking up those nuggets, you'll see the excellent wife in in, in Proverbs 31 really as the personification of wisdom. Now, she is assigned feminine characters. She has feminine pronouns. But like Adam uh, and Eve were working in the paradigm of work in the garden, Proverbs 31 is really another paradigm for work. So, guys, we can learn also from her tasks, from her abilities in Proverbs 31. But Proverbs 31 really reveals the personification of wisdom primarily in the area of work. This lady is involved uh, in a number of things, by the way. Uh, I I just jotted down a few of the things that she'll be involved in, see if we can pick them up as we go. She's a supply chain logician. She's a manufacturer. She's into real estate. She's a viticulturalist. She owns a vineyard. She's a strategic planner. She's a uh, philanthropist. She's a fashion designer. She's a fashion manufacturer. She's a fashion salesperson. She's got quite an enterprise and operation going with her husband at their home, their farm, probably in this culture. And notice the heart of her husband trusts her. She, like Eve, is a valuable partner in the task of work. And so the trustworthiness of the, of the wise worker is seen by her. But there's a couple of different ways to think about trustworthiness, okay? Faithful and honest. So faithful to her responsibilities. Notice all these things that she does in chapter 31. She's faithful uh, to meet the needs and deal with her customers uh, and, and listen to their request. Uh, to the community, she's going to uh, have an involvement with her family, and with her co-workers. Let's look at these verses uh, as we see that unfold. Uh, notice here in um, 
Uh, Chapter 31, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She takes care of her family. She likes she is like merchant ships. She brings food from afar. She listens and fulfills the demands of her customers. She rises while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. Notice the care she has for her co-workers. And lastly, her community. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. A faithful, responsible worker who is trustworthy needs also to be honest, first in words and then in deeds. Notice words here stated negatively, as the Proverbs will do from time to time, especially in the realm of business, especially in the relationships around business. It can be a slippery slope, can it not be, when we don't tell the truth. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Notice throughout these Proverbs, the connectivity of God to these principles. It's as if what we tell our kids is really true. God is watching. Well, he's also watching me and you in our places of work, in our tasks when there's no kids around. He's involved with things that are an abomination to him, and he is looking to be delighted by those who are faithful. We also see that the the idea of deeds comes up. A just balance and scales, notice the intimacy of this, belong to the Lord. All the weights of of the bag are his concern. Okay, kind of weird lingo here. This is sort of Old Testament lingo, but all you got to do to unlock this is to go to your grocery store. Go to the produce section, and your own admission, guys, wife sent you to buy five pounds of potatoes. How do you know how many five pounds are until you see a scale? Okay, And the scale is really what tells you the truth. Notice their fingers, by the way. I get a kick out of this. This is from 1936, Saturday Evening Post. Uh, They're both kind of counterbalancing each other. But where are their eyes? Their eyes are on the scale. They're going to kind of bow to the scale. That If it it says five pounds, I'm assuming that there's five pounds in the bag. And the scale needs to be even. Does it need to be calibrated my way as a seller. In that day, both the buyer and the seller owned their own set of weights. Maybe it's something you got for, I don't know, Feast of First Fruits Day or something. You got a set of weights. And when you went to the store, you would have your weights and they would have their weights. And what he's saying is they should be just. They should all correspond to a standard. As a buyer, I might be tempted to write five on my rock but really have it weigh five and a half pounds. So I get 10% more, right? As a seller, you might be tempted to write five on it, but shave a few ounces and only give me four and a half pounds of produce. He's talking about, notice, the just balance, the just scales belong to the Lord. He's watching, he's observing how we conduct ourselves in commerce. All the weights of the bag are his concern. He's concerned about even the details of our business and how we treat fellow customers and treat fellow employees, and certainly in the area of money. Diligent workers is the next thing. We've seen them a good, the wise worker to be trustworthy, also diligent. Uh, and there's three components of this diligence, working hard and planning and contributing profit. But I love the kind of overview verse that we've assigned to this, that the hand of the diligent will rule. This idea of diligence is, is really quite interesting in the original language. It, uh, it, it conveys the concept to, to cut something. 
sometimes it's used to cut a ditch. And it's the attitude that goes with that precision to be decisive, to be, to be determined, to be about the business. We might say in our work, in our world, I've got my work cut out for me. Okay. I'm clear about what I'm doing and I'm about the task of doing that work. If I'm cutting a ditch, I don't want my ditch to sway and wave. I want it to be straight. It's, it's edges sharp. It's, it's uh, borders defined clearly. That's that idea of diligence, always being about doing things the right way and identifying what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. What we're going to see now as we can't have a message on work from the Proverbs and not go to the ant, right? Notice the admonition is to the sluggard. So the, the, what's going on in chapter six is you're trying to get the sluggard up out of bed and say, look, even the ant knows stuff you don't know, right? Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, another feminine noun, by the way, and be wise, who having no chief officer or ruler, circle that one in your Bible, no chief officer or ruler, there's no ant bosses apparently, the ants just know what to do. They prepare food in the summer, they gather provision in the harvest. Most of us work in structures where there are bosses, but bosses aren't always watching, right? This is that admonition to be diligent, to be about that work that's, that's cutting that good ditch straight and sharp and being my own boss toward that task of being a professional in that realm, if you will. Learn from the ant. And then she works with willing hands. She's diligent. She's a hard worker. I think this is really the secret to what the Proverbs 31 woman can teach us about work is that word willing. It's translated elsewhere, joy. It's translated elsewhere, delight. It's translated elsewhere, precious. That idea that work is this task in which I can involve myself and I can be delighted in it and cause God to be delighted in my activity. And I find it and hold it precious. It's something that God has assigned to me. He's given me a ditch to cut. Am I going to cut it straight and sharp and be about that business? Even when the boss ain't looking, am I going to be about that? Am I going to be a willing worker? One who is joyfully involved. One of the things that we can see that diligent workers are is they also plan for the future. We talked about the Proverbs 31 woman being strategic planner. Here's another one in chapter 21. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to want. Every day, keeping it up. Every day, putting the lick in. Every day, cutting the ditch straight is that idea of planning for the future. For that day is coming in which I will need abundance perhaps on which to live. What we're going to see also is that the diligent worker contributes profit. Her merchandise is profitable. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. I do a lot of life coaching, especially with college graduates, people that are in their senior year, and especially with guys. I was a finance major in college, so I understand the world of finance and accounting. I do leadership development here as well as work with our operations team. So I work on budgets and insurance just as much as I work on Hebrew exegesis around here. And with these guys, especially, I can kind of talk their language. I was a finance major, accounting minor, and they'll often come in, and these are 
Christians, kids out of our college ministry, and they'll, they'll want some advice on which job should I take, you know, and certainly should I take the, the job with the most money or the, the coolest benefits or the neatest city. And, and, it's, and what kind of comes out is almost this idea that, well, now that I'm a graduate from Texas A&M University, May School of Business, it's like a union card, and I have the uh, proper authority to work almost wherever I want to. And I kind of volley back a little different and said, what are you bringing them? Because that's what they're hiring you for. Let's make no bones about it. They want to make money on you. And that's, that's okay. That's good. Use your gifts, use your talents to make money for them. And by the way, in that pursuit, you'll also be blessed. It is fine for the diligent worker to not only be trustworthy, for the wise worker to not only be trustworthy, but diligent. And to understand that we're called to contribute profit not just kind of skate by, not kind of just hang out in the dark over here and nobody sees us, but engage and be involved in the advancement of whatever effort we're in vocationally, whatever effort we're in collectively as business people or as in our vocation. Of the seven, my experience is this is probably the most important because usually it's not hard to kind of rally folks, hey, you got to work hard. Most people come from a pretty good work ethic uh, and be diligent about it. But shrewdness is important, uh, important, especially for the Christian in the secular workforce. And that's where I, when I stand up here, when Brian stands up here or Blake, when we look out, 99% of you are going to be in secular work. We want you to know we know that, okay? And we want to start addressing that issue. Uh, we have many times the privilege of, of bringing people in who know how to uh, do Bible studies and have particular spiritual gifts. And we can kind of identify those guys and gals pretty easy. But, but those that are working in the array of types of work that you would be working in, from my perspective, we've got to give you large level principles to help you through. And I know the kind of environment you work in. I've been working 42 years, 27 of them in Christian ministry, 17 of them not. And I understand the wisdom of shrewdness, especially in the secular workforce. This word shrewd, by the way, if, you're, if you grew up in the King James, it's the word translated prudent uh, in, in Proverbs. It's first seen, ironically, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Same Hebrew word, just translated crafty there. Translated prudent in the King James, shrewd elsewhere. In, our, in the New American Standards and NIV, this idea of craftiness, one who, who can make the most of resources. It's not really a moral word. People are moral or uh, immoral. Words are just descriptors. So the, the serpent can be crafty as he tried to figure out, how do I split this newly formed couple up so I can be king of the hill? And he used the resources that were available to him to cause that to be. That's what shrewd workers do. They size things up. They have keen awareness. They use keen judgment. They prepare for contingencies. They're not caught off guard when, when something happens because they've predicted it's going to happen because stuff happens. They're, they're students of history. They know what can happen in the past will most likely happen again in the future. They're humble enough to seek good advice and they improve their skill and knowledge. Notice some of these characteristics showing up in the Proverbs 31 woman. She's shrewd in that she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Remember all those things that I read that she was involved in? She needed physical strength and mental awareness to, be, to do her job well, to partner well with her husband in their enterprise. She's not afraid of the snow for her household. 
for her household are clothed with scarlet. She's not caught off guard when it snows. She's ready. She's got the clothes on which to warm her family when those contingencies happen. Wise workers also can be generous. Not only can they be trustworthy, not only diligent, not only shrewd, but I think we're mandated to be generous. One of the things that at times we can miss is the relationship between work and generosity, between that which I am required to do, my fiduciary duty, and my ability to be generous. And if we're not careful, we can separate those two and kind of end up in this camp only. I make money for me. That's who it's for, and that's where it's going to stay because I don't know what's coming. And I'm not going to give it away. Let this guy over here work hard too, pull himself by his bootstraps, and you've completely missed the essence of the love one another passages throughout the Word of God. The book of James will parallel this dramatically, as we'll see James also do the same thing. Notice uh, as this verse unfolds, one who is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord. Again, notice the intimacy of God involving himself in the most routine of things. Writing a check to Compassion International, writing a check to the food bank, uh, helping someone who's on the, the down and out. One who is gracious, in fact, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. I love this one the most because the connection between the two verse, I'm kind of a Hebrew geek, so there's some stuff in there that I like. There's two different kinds of words for help or hands rather that shows up. There's one Hebrew word, the yellow word uh, that shows up in verse 19 and 20, and then kind of the blue-green word, a synonym, but another Hebrew word that shows up. And and the image is obvious that her hands, by the multi-use of the word for hands, are all over the place. But the connection between verse 19 and 20, I think, is the key. Look at verse 19 carefully. What is that describing? It's describing her vocation. In this case, she's a spindler. She's got a textile manufacturing thing going on. She puts her hands to the distaff. The distaff is a part of the spindle. So she's at the the, the spindle and, and, and thread is being weaved. She puts her hands to the staff and her hands hold the spindle. That's kind of an artistic way to describe her work. Notice the next verse. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. And the point is obvious. The same hands that toiled and were diligent, that worked hard, that were shrewd, that were trustworthy, those same hands now are extended to help those in need. Okay? The connectivity between work and generosity is a major principle throughout the Word of God, especially in the book of Proverbs. And it is a pearl of wisdom that we should be putting in our little bag. Just workers also, or, or wise workers are also just. They, they are aware of the standards. Okay? But being aware of the standard only, I think, and certainly in a book like Proverbs, which is wisdom literature, will render you naive or simple. If you simply think life is a bunch of standards and we all need to keep them and everyone is, you are simple or you are naive is what the Proverbs would say. The wise worker also understands that injustice and unfairness, however sorry it is that it's occurring, does occur. The wise worker is not naive. The wise worker understands that they're standards, and I want those standards to be met. But they also have a grid for injustice and unfairness and want to avoid it in their personal life and in their business. They are aware that it's like an enemy that can creep in uh, and, and 
and in fact ruin things. So they conclude better a little with righteousness than large income with injustice or oppressing the poor in order to enrich oneself and giving to the rich. Now, don't look, notice, I'm going to oppress the poor by not give to them so I can keep the money. And I'm going to impress the rich by giving to them so they'll give me more deals and I can become more rich as a result of that. That leads only to loss. The connection between not only money and generosity, but, but justice and injustice is in fact one who, a thing that will characterize the wise. The wise worker also guards his tongue. Notice, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. Where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. Around the water tank, around the coffee pot, the the whispering can happen at office, right? And all of a sudden, like James would say, those, those little flames of fire get ignited all the more and all of a sudden, there's a, a furor. Those of us in Christian ministry, we do it this way. Could I get some more information on this subject so that I could pray more specifically? Thank you. Okay? That's how we do it. Okay? Where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. The, the obvious, remove the whisperer. Don't whisper about things. Soft answer turns away wrath. Harsh word stirs up anger. Man, I know that's true at home, but how about in the workplace? That time where uh, that word you've said and that avalanche that occurs right after that unspoken, that unfortunate word can really tear down months and years of esprit de corps with that harsh answer. What we say and do matters in personal life as well as in the workplace. And lastly, the wise worker is humble. Humility is the idea of, of, in the Bible of understanding who you are and who you're not. Okay? Uh, it's relishing what you are and also being glad that you're not in charge of, of, of too much. So the, the temptation or the necessity rather to avoid pride and the lure of fame is important. That will capture lots of us. That, that seductress is out there. That's, I want to be famous. But notice what the proverb says about that subject. Do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day will bring forth. Let another praise you, not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. That's the way to guard against the allure of fame. And of course, what the cousin to that is at times the lure of, of wealth. Pride goes before destruction, and before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better, I love this, it is better to be of lowly spirit among the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. When it comes to the scrutiny of God watching and observing, he's saying, step back from that sense of injustice that you might be considering and rather divide the spoil with the poor with the poor rather than divide with the proud. Avoid the lure of wealth, the lure of fame. They may come, but let another bring that about in your life. These are the sevenfold aspects of work that you'll see in the book of Proverbs. I want you to think about some things as we, as we close up shop now uh, in, in the area of, pardon the pun, some, some homework that I want to give you to think about a bit how this might play out in your everyday life. We've obviously gleaned a few things along the way. Uh, let's make sure uh, that we understand a couple things first. The privilege of thanking God for the duty and privilege of work. And that thought might be repulsive to some. 
I'm going to establish a spectrum up here that this is the beginning of the spectrum, the ability to thank God for the duty and privilege of work, and then we'll try to work our way down here in a moment. But frankly, maybe you're outside the roller coaster. You're not on the spectrum yet. You're saying, dude, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not there. You don't know what it's like in my office. You don't know what you're asking me to do. Then I'll ask you to think about it. I'll ask you to think about, has God ordained work for you? And is the work that you have been given to you by God? And in some realm, can you share that with him? Beginning that process, I think, can move us along the spectrum. For those that might already be on here, just thank God. Thank God you got a job. Thank God that you have the duty and the privilege to work with him and others. But then I want you to ask you to, to reimagine your work a bit kind of cast some of the, the, the normal ways of thinking about work and, and, and let's come at it a different perspective, okay? Um, I, the, 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 the thing that reimagined work can really help us do is to not see work just as a place to make money and not just as a place, maybe one day, if everything goes perfectly, I might be able to lead someone to Christ at work, okay? Too often we've reduced work to that. In many cases, in, in sessions that I have with men especially, they've completely divor- divorced it. My work and my faith are totally separate. I don't take God to work, and I don't take my work home. But that is what I do during the day. It is how God provides a living for me and my family, and that's how I view making money, and that's what God has for me. And I'm saying that work imagined that way, just as a place to make money, just as a place maybe one day to lead someone to Christ is insufficient. We're capable of doing many things at the same time, by the way. So I'm not saying we don't do these, but let's add to the bucket. Okay, let's put some more pearls in the basket and how we might live or be wise in our work and reimagine that work, not just this way, but in other ways, okay? Seeing work, not just as a way to make money, not just as a way to influence others for Christ, but also as an opportunity to participate with God in his plan for humankind, an opportunity to bring him pleasure as we've seen, an opportunity to enjoy a meaningful and real partnership with God, that take God to work kind of attitude that is new to a lot of people. This idea of caring and watching over the planet in and through him as a partner with him. Let's go a little bit more deep, okay? Reimagine work can be an opportunity to demonstrate the God-given creativity that God has placed with you, within you for your work. Now, about a third of you just checked out on me because you're going, creativity? I mean, these guys are creative. I'm an engineer. I'm not, I'm not creative. I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a professor. I'm just trying to raise kids. What are you talking about being creative? All human beings are made in the image of God, believer and unbeliever. And part of being made in the image of God is to have this deposit within us, not only to have spiritual capacity, we can be united with God spiritually, but also to carry on what I call the family business. If you look in the Bible, the very first verb assigned to God in the scripture, barashit bara Elohim, bara to create. And I set forth that what he possesses, he has imparted to us. And we have the ability 
to be imaginative, to be innovative. So sure, you're a civil engineer, mechanical engineer. I get that you have a structure and physics and math and gravity kind of rule that structure. But there's also room for imagination. There's also room for innovation. Doctors and lawyers, you have structures of laws and, and, and biology and science, but there's still room for innovation and imagination. That's how discoveries are made by working within the, within the structure, but also bringing innovation and imaginative. That's the creative deposit that God has put in all human beings. We can exercise that for good in our life. If you'll allow, I'm, I'm a literary engineer. Uh, I take a look at the structure of language in the text, and, and I notice n- mood and verb and, and t- nouns and, and verb tenses and objects and, and, and mood and, and genre and all these different things, but then I can still use imagination, and I can still use innovation. So, you know, it's not just the Bob Dylans and the Beyonce's of the world that are creative. It's not just the worship guys and gals that are creative. In fact, they also work with structure, like the engineers, tonality and music and notes, what is pleasing to the ear, but then they can infuse creativity, innovation, imagination into that effort. We're creative beings. We have the opportunity also to show value to our fellow workers, that in fact, our fellow workers are valuable. All human beings made in the image of God, right? Yeah, even that coworker that you're so glad got transferred out of your department, got moved to the sixth floor, and you're trying to work your whole day around not seeing him or her in the parking lot or the elevator, that individual is made in the image of God and thus is valuable. One of the conferences I enjoy most is the Faith and Work Conference put on by Tim Keller's Church in New York. And it's every November, and I've gone a couple of times now and really enjoy some of the speakers there. And one of them, a workshop leader, is, her name is Nancy Ortberg, and she's the Director of Leadership Development at a church in Chicago. And she tells the story where she first learned the idea that her coworkers are valuable. She was, uh, she's in her late 50s now. She's probably, when she was probably in her earlier in her 20s, she was a nurse. And uh, she was a, a surgical nurse, and she was desi- assigned to a team of, of doctors and attendings and typically the same anesthesiologist in this hospital. And the routine would be there to be an emergency situation. They'd get triaged in the ER and then move to surgery as necessary. And this was the team waiting for now the triaged individual to come in for surgeries. In particular, one day, there was a 24-year-old woman that was, uh, had gone through multiple traumas and had to endure multiple surgeries. And over a three-hour code, she recalls it was quite iffy whether this young lady was going to make it. The particular doctor that she most enjoyed working with, the team leader, was a Christ follower, a Christian. And uh, he, she learned all sorts of uh, not only medical techniques from him, but ways of understanding people. One particular day on that code, uh, afterwards they would have a, a typical Q&A that the good teacher would have and talk about medical stuff, the kind of stitch we used here, and maybe we should move that gauze tray over here, and we're going to need a, a, a better lighting uh, for that type of uh, technique, things that the docs, would, the nurses would talk about. There was a particular uh, intern, first-year resident, on, that had been assigned that day, and he had scrubbed in and he had helped a little, but mainly he was observing. Now, he was fresh from a medical school up east, pretty much a hot shot, and the doc sort of figured it out and asked him a different kind of question. Didn't ask him a question about a a particular kind of of suture or a particular kind of uh, antibiotic. He said, hey, 
Did you notice the guy that cleaned up the room while we were doing our Q&A? And as you might imagine, the, the hotshot looked at him with disdain and said, you know, no, you know, why, why would I? And Ortsberg remembers saying, there it was, the teachable moment, because the whole room stopped with that, why would I? The doctor very calmly said, his name is Carlos. He's the best houseworker we got, and we got a lot of him. He cleans the room faster than any of the other teams, and we're able to handle more codes, handle more surgeries. By the way, his wife's name is Maria. They live about three miles from here. And he went on to name the names of all three children, went on to name the ages of all three kids. And it was quite apparent that the doc had been to Carlos's house. And she never forgot it. She never forgot that simple life moment of valuing another human being who has value simply because he's a human being, let alone the effort he was bringing to cleaning the room up. Now, I mean, I wish the story went on that Carlos is now the chief of surgery at Johns Hopkins or something. He's not. He's probably retired now. But the story is still valuable to create and show value in people is crucial. And I'll leave you with this one. The opportunity to represent God at work. Remember, we were picking up little nuggets along the way, going through Proverbs. Now's the time to drop a few on others. Imagine the most secular workplace you can think of, and maybe some of you are there. I work with a lot of guys that end up on Wall Street, and I follow up with them, and I understand what they're going through. And they're not being asked to lead a Bible study at lunch during their first week, okay? How then can they shrewdly minister in that context? Because they've been given ability and talent to know finance, to know hedge funds, to know derivatives, to know accounting. That's why they're there. But how can they represent God well at that workplace? By dropping little deposits of grace, of mercy, of compassion, of servant leadership. And the more secular, the blacker the backdrop, if you will, the more the diamond of God's grace, the, God, the diamond of God's deposits will shine. Yeah, you'll, you'll stick out a little. And you, have that pro- you can have that proper way of letting folks know that you stand for Christ. But I promise you, when life hits, and it will, you'll get the call. You'll get the call. Be that guy, be that gal that gets to know the name of your coworkers and his or her spouse and her kids and what they're interested in. Those are shrewd entrees for the gospel later to be a part of their life. Be that spiritually guided missile, if you will, in that office, that smart bomb, that asset who can come in and make a difference for the things of Christ. This concept of work helps us to appreciate and value all kinds of work from the most simple to the most complex by both believers and non-believers. Christians can learn not only to value and participate in the work of all people, but also to see ways to, see ways to, to work distinctly as Christians. You know, we have an advantage, guys. We have, we have a manual. We have the mind of God written down. And we also have an indwelling Holy Spirit that can help guide us. So pray at your work for, for favor, for wisdom, for skill. Work hard. Contribute a profit. Ask God to, to, to allow you an unusual uh, platform, usually through your gifts and talents, and then you'll be ready. Work distinctly as Christians. And I've been, uh, I've been working since I was 20. I've been on my own since I was 20. Um, that's 42 years now, almost 43. It's the best book on work I've ever read. Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, is something that if you're on this spectrum, 
I'm asking you to read. If anything we said today kind of intrigued you about this different way of thinking about work, this reimagined lifestyle of work, far more than what I've said is here. It's, you know, as a, as a biblicist, a theologian, I've been a Christian 34 years. Probably five books in my life outside the Bible have impacted me as much as this book. So I'm not just looking for an application to end a sermon. I, I asked to preach this message uh, because some of the things that God has been teaching me, even at 62 years old, I'm still learning. So be encouraged that, that we understand what life is like not working in a church, and we want to arm you to the best of our ability to help you understand um, how God would have you, have you work. Also, their webpage, faithandwork.com, top-notch, great videos, great position papers, things to uh, cause you to think a bit. Um, that's the idea of work from the book of Proverbs, that sevenfold idea of being trustworthy, of being diligent, of being shrewd, of being generous, just, one who guards the tongue and is humble, and one who now can reimagine work. That's a powerful believer in the workplace, in the workplace. And that's my hope and prayer for us all. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we've had this morning to think about these things for just a moment. Give us time outside this place and with others to uh, go back and search the scriptures and see if these things are so. Uh, to talk it over with others and think through how I might be different in my work tomorrow. I thank you for each one here, Lord. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. See you next time.